This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we are going to get some more reaction. I'm joined by NDP, MPP, Francelina Nickelbelt. She's also the health crit- critic. And Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hi, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you again, Livy. Uh, hi, France. Uh, so uh, what do you think of this initiative, France? Uh, those are small steps that are not going to fix the huge problems we have providing quality care in a respectful way to our elders. We know what needs to be done. PSW needs to have permanent full-time job with a decent pay, benefits, pension plan, and a workload that a human being can handle, giving the long-term care home operators more money so that they could uh, do something for PSW is a far cry for what, from what is needed to bring respectful quality care to our elders. It's a huge amount of money, though. Uh, I mean, if that money is actually used to hire workers, um, uh, what's the issue? I think you said it in your question. If the money is actually used to hire workers, if the money is used, a lot of the money that goes to our long-term care system right now goes to pay shareholders hundreds of millions of dollars that should be going to patient care ends up in the pocket of shareholders because we have this privatized long-term care home system. Uh, So your question is if... If the money was to be made to create permanent full-time jobs at a decent pay with benefit, pension plan, and a workload that a human being can handle, yes, it could go a long ways. But there is no strings attached to this. They could continue to have a whole bunch of part-time jobs. They could continue to... Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. He did say that there will be an audit. They aren't going to mandate, uh, you're right, the full-time, but he, he said that there, they will mandate that this money has to be earmarked for hiring staff. Uh, Doris, do you, do you believe yeah. them? I, I want to comment on the issue uh, that uh, Frangelina brought about full-time with benefits that's critical, uh, given that then you will have people staying. I do want to augment what Frangelina is saying by adding that while PSWs are essential, I keep telling them the PSWs alone we cannot do outstanding care. They need nurses. So the government announced, quite frankly, money for PSWs and for RNs and for RPNs. Uh, we hope that it will be used to the purpose that is necessary. They committed to the four hours. Um, my, my concern is with the timelines, right? And I, and I have been with you, Libby, on yeah. this before. Uh, yes, it's a good announcement yesterday. We need to fasten timelines. Uh, we cannot, seniors cannot wait, residents cannot wait till till 2024. We need to fasten it. And there is something immediate, Libby, that you and I also have spoken. Now we have finally mandatory vaccination in long-term care, which is wonderful. And you will see that today we're coming with a press release that this needs to expand to all sectors because you know what's happening, Libby. They're leaving long-term care and going to home care because in home care is not mandatory. So we will have more and more exodus of people from long-term care, nurses, PSWs, those that don't want to get vaccinated, which is a minority, but it is, and they will go to home care. So nursing homes are shorter and shorter and shorter because of inconsistent policies. The government needs to move with immediate things that we have been asking for for months and months and months and most healthcare workers are asking 
mandatory vaccination across all sectors, safe zones across all sectors, and higher, 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 full-time with benefits so people have good work in the sector of their choice. Um, so, uh, again, Doris, do you trust them to do what they say and make sure that's what's happening? Or I that's trust a- one. I, first of all, let me tell you that it's night and day uh, working with Rod Phillips uh, as compared to his predecessor. I have spoken with him numerous times. I do trust that they, that they will audit that the money goes to staffing. Staffing alone, if it's only PSWs, will be insufficient. And staffing alone, if it's part-time casual, will be insufficient because people will gravitate to where they offer them full-time with benefits, like any anybody else. So France is right on that. We need full-time with benefits. We need consistent policies in all sectors, like the vaccination, like the safe zones, so that we can then have people working in the sector of their choice, because that's what they love to do. I, 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 you know, usually I stay away from certain kinds of characterizations, but you, you, you hit it out, and I'm, I'm, I have to say that after watching this and talking to the minister, if nothing else, it highlights the staggering incompetence of his predecessor. Oh, Dios. <laughs> I go in Spanish because it only can come in Spanish that strong. It is, if we had had uh, Dr. Moore, let's start there, and you and I spoke when I was calling for Dr. Williams' resignation. If we had had Kieran Moore at the head of Ontario's public health system, and if we had had Rod Phillips we would have had a different situation because the listening and the action of the premier listening to those two players is very different than what happened before with with the predecessors of of both of those positions. So we need to keep pushing. The NDP and the liberals put now uh, a piece on safe zones. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, France. And thank you also to the colleagues with Del Duca. We need to move with all these pieces. And we need to be consistent. If we are not consistent, you cannot blame a worker, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, or a, or a pharmacist, or a PSW, that will go to the hospital because they give them full time versus in home care. Absolutely. Right? But or, it, or in nursing homes. In, in hospitals, I mean, they've got, they've got huge nursing shortages, too. Everywhere. Every everywhere, everywhere. Uh, France. We have to um, uh, we have to wrap things up. But uh, is there anything to add that beyond trying, making sure, or mandating that these are full time jobs? Yes, there has to be strings attached to the money. To look at what happened to the money after it's spent. To me, is opportunity wasted. We know what needs to be uh, happen. Why don't they mandate seventy percent full time yeah. permanent jobs for everybody who works in long term care? We did that in hospital with nurses. We mandated hospitals to that. have a minimum of seventy percent of their nursing staff to yeah. be full time. It changed the way hospital care. Yeah, that uh, was McGinty era, the first. Four years of McGinty was mandated, Libby. France yep. is totally right. Mandated, and it worked like magic. This I, is why we are now at almost 70% care. full I, time. I, we used to be below 15 nursing. I have to, I have to tell you, I, I did not get a good answer when I asked why uh, he wasn't mandating this, but but we'll see. I, I uh, You know, uh I say, benefit of the doubt. Um, uh, do you agree with that, ladies? I, I don't. I don't. He's not mandating it because the long-term care lobby is really, really close to Mr. Ford, and they don't want it. The long-term care wants to be able to hire part-time staff from the uh, temp agency that they own so that not only will they make money on every hour that is being uh, worked, they will make money through their temp agency. The uh, creativity of the long-term care industry to make money is mind-boggling. You have to regulate them because the vulnerable, the 78,000 vulnerable Ontarian that lives there deserve Ontario protection. And, and Libby, I would agree with France that if we will 
if we will put the eggs in the baskets of the operators and the sh- they will they will look at where you cut corners to to make the money last even if it's not to to take the money away is to make the money last if you don't have full time with benefits what you don't have leave is enough staff and also you don't have continuity of care because people come and go come and go so you need it for quality of care you need it for retention and you need it so people work in the sectors that their heart and knowledge calls them. Okay. Not what's happening now that they go wherever the job is better, and that's why you have the, it's like a revolving door, and people cannot get good care in that way. Okay. We will see how this shakes out. Thank you so much, Dr. Doris Greenspoon and France Jelina. You're very welcome. You. And happy Thanksgiving. Thank hey, you, both of you. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. And uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, we will be talking about the Thanksgiving food drive and the situation in our city when we come back on the other side of the break. Let me give you the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Thanksgiving, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As many of us are preparing our Thanksgiving feasts, it's also time to focus on food insecurity in our community. The Daily Bread Food Bank has launched its annual food drive amid a 67% increase in food bank use among its member food banks year over year. Now, a big part of the problem is the huge cost of housing. The Toronto Foundation reports one in four Torontonians cannot afford to live in the city. Home prices and vacant rentals have increased by staggering amounts, and more people are finding themselves in shelters since the end of the eviction ban last June. Uh, So I'd like to hear from you. Are you participating in the food drive? Uh, is this a time of year? Do, do you Are you surprised by hearing these numbers? This is uh, another pandemic Thanksgiving. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank, and Sharon Avery, President and CEO of the Toronto Foundation. Hello, everyone. Thanks. Good afternoon. Hey, Libby. Hey. Uh, Neil, I have to say I was a bit surprised by such a big increase just because I would have imagined that with so many people on CERB, that would take some pressure off food banks. Well, I can only imagine if we didn't have CERB. And, uh, and so that will be uh, leaving uh, shortly, um, the additional income supports. And so... Um, the, the report that we uh, have, uh, and the numbers that you've cited, and our upcoming Who's Hungry report, um, really point to a very difficult situation for way too many Torontonians. Um, in uh, the Toronto Foundation report, Vital Signs, it's one in four really struggling. And so, uh, so the food drive uh, continues, but more importantly, our advocacy efforts uh, remain very, very strong to, uh, to make sure that we can, uh, we can recover, build back better, and address the, the critical nature of, uh, of the concerns that are out there. Sharon Avery, uh, same question to you. I, I was surprised by things getting worse uh, at a time when we had a lot of income support. Well, I think that is the point, Libby. Uh, I think the, the one of the po- positive, is there anything positive coming out of the pandemic? But there is a statistic that is in contrast to this, and that is how much wealth has increased in Canada, but only for a small segment of the population, and those are our homeowners. So homeowners in Canada saw a $1.7 trillion increase in wealth in the last 18 months. Um, that's the highest we've seen in 20 years. 
Um, and so I think what, what Neil and I are, are in the center of right now is this growing chasm. We used to call it the gap between rich and poor. It's becoming a chasm between rich and poor, where homeowners have largely stayed financially stable through um, the, the pandemic, but are, are one in four. That translates Libby into 650,000 Torontonians who can't make ends meet. That's the size of Vancouver. Um, it is an enormous part of our, our city. These are our neighbors. And I think all of us want to do something about it. Well, I, <clears throat> there's no question that the income gap has grown, but also on the other side of it with, with homeowners, I mean, that's on paper. And if, if, uh, if you sell your, ha- your home for a huge amount of money and you need to live somewhere, you know, it's 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 the same thing, right? It's on paper for sure, but the fact is, it's stability. And I think the 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 folks that Neil and the food bank are serving have no financial stability right now at all. And so it isn't that I'm saying people have all the money in the world to spend. It's that they have the financial stability to weather this pandemic. And and what what our report is trying to point out is that there is a huge population of our neighbors that won't make it without continued support. Okay. And just to just add on to what uh, Sharon said, <clears throat> we saw the lineups, Libby, and we were we had many conversations uh, as soon as the first lockdown happened, and how quickly those lines grew. Individuals who were sort of getting by were just getting by, and what we saw very clearly was the people that we serve at the Daily Bread Food Bank are the first ones to be kicked out of the economy and lose jobs uh, with the least amount of resiliency, and the last to be brought back into the economy. And so when we talk about, you know, upcoming trends and concerns, the statistics are, are absolutely alarming. Um, but I am most concerned, not just about this year, but as soon as the changes to CERB happen and the eviction moratoriums are completely lifted and, uh, and we deal with another <clears throat> uh, wave of challenges before people's incomes have, uh, and, and return to employment have, has taken place. I'm I'm most concerned about uh, uh, next year and the following year. In 2008, when the recession happened, the highest number of food bank usage uh, that we recorded was 2011. That was, and then it started to level off. And so I, I'm I'm a really optimistic guy, um, but I'm very concerned about uh, about the next few years. So, uh, what do you need for this food drive? What are you looking for? Well, we're looking for for three things. Um, First, uh, for uh, Torontonians to consider uh, making a financial contribution to to their local food bank, to the Daily Bread Food Bank, to North York Harvest, um, to consider dropping off food at any grocery store or any fire hall, or perhaps this Saturday dropping by 191 New Toronto Street. We're going to have a a, a drive-through drop-off where you'll see a lot of firefighters and well-known Torontonians safely take food out of the back of your car. And I'm hopeful that that is our last contactless uh, public event. And then uh, the, the third one, and I think probably the most important, is if you don't have um, the, the, the means perhaps right now to, uh, to, uh, to drop off food or funds, perhaps thinking about um, advocating. Um, actually, whether you have the means or not, um, we all have the ability to to uh, to get in touch with our local uh, elected officials. All three levels of government have a poverty reduction strategy, and they just need to make sure that their constituents know that it's important uh, to implement that strategy. Thanksgiving was traditionally a time where people would actually get out and volunteer, and uh, you know that's not really happening now because of the pandemic. What what kind of an effect does that have on you? Well, it's it certainly put a strain on us having to purchase more food, um, uh, so uh, and to get through the amount of sorted food takes us uh, a little bit longer. Um, and so, you know, if people aren't able to do that, um, you know, it just maybe maybe having a, a family evening where where you sit around and and you 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 read through the the um, 
Foundations, Toronto Foundations Vital Signs Report, the summary of it, and just talk about these issues with your with your family this Thanksgiving. As you're thinking about all the blessings that you've got in your life, there's a whole host of individuals in our city, one one in four, who are who are struggling. And uh, and we have the opportunity to learn more about it, and more importantly, do something about it by advocating. And and Sharon, what are you looking for? Is it more affordable housing? I mean, we on on all of these things, uh, we keep getting promises about them. Well, I would say we aren't policy experts, but we did consult about three hundred community leaders, including Neil, in our report. And um, there's lots of discussion about the things that were tried, like CERB, through this um, this time that could uh, be the gateway to future thinking about how we provide financial support or policy work around um, minimum wage, et cetera, for folks, because the income gap is is part of the issue. The housing challenges, there are lots of not-for-profits out there that are in the affordable housing space. And as Neil said, we're really encouraging folks to consider volunteering and giving and using their voice to support these grassroots organizations that have been the true heroes. Like it, it, the work done by the food banks in this city have been heroic through this um, through this pandemic. And so encouraging folks to get involved at the neighborhood level, um, uh, as well as using their voice um, to advocate for, for, for change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we saw, uh, I think, a, a 10 cent uh, an hour increase in the minimum wage. But then, Neil, on the other hand, uh, employers of all kinds are complaining that they, they can't find workers. They can't recruit the people they need. Well, I, I think that the you know there there certainly are challenges for uh, for employers. Um, there are, and I think that that might be a time where we reflect on uh, what are the um, what are the salaries that uh, ought to be provided to somebody so that they can have a living wage. The change to the minimum wage was was ten cents. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and that was. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that Pooch not, said it. To have been. <laughs> And my dog Charlie is very upset about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I don't blame Charlie. Um, okay, I think he's had his say. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but as I said, there it's this dichotomy where there uh, there's a lot of work going begging. There is, and I think that there needs to be a, a, a change in terms of are we content with paying minimum wage? Are we content with, uh, or do we need to look at uh, new salaries for individuals who, uh, who need that? Um, most of the people that we serve at the Daily Bread Food Bank are cobbling together two and three uh, part-time jobs um, without benefits. I was going to, can I, if you don't mind me jumping in, Libby, I was going to build on that to say one of the, the big findings in the report was that who you are in the city um, really matters in terms of how well you're faring in the pandemic. And there's no question that uh, newcomers, women, uh, low-income folks, um, uh, disabled folks are the ones struggling the most through this. And as Neil said, they're often, you know, they haven't found that their work hours have um, gone back to pre-pandemic levels, um, whereas the sort of white-collar community is working those hours and beyond at this point. So there's a lot of contrast, and who you are really does matter. I remember previous reports, we talked about an increase in the number of older people using food banks. Uh, How are they faring through this, Neil? Sorry, Charlie just interrupted us again. I didn't hear the question. Uh, In previous reports, uh, I was very surprised at an increase in the number of older people using food banks. How is that demographic, our demographic, doing? We will um, we will see uh, in the Who's Hunger report in about six weeks the uh, the change to that number. Um, what I can tell you is that we have had to adapt pretty significantly during the pandemic to be able to provide um, delivery to a number of individuals who uh, who are homebound, including the elderly. Mm-hmm. And do you th- sorry, go ahead, Sharon. I was gonna, I was just gonna add that what we're seeing for seniors on top of it, and it's connected, I think, is, is significant increase in isolation and long term. One of the things we haven't talked about, but it's all one of the intersections in all of this is mental health. 
So we're seeing 400,000 Torontonians um, dealing with mental health challenges. We're seeing a huge increase. We've got the highest depression rates uh, in the, nearly the whole country here in Toronto. And so seniors are a big piece of that as well. Mm-hmm. And what is your recommendation on, I mean, the mental health crisis? Well, a mental health crisis, uh, you've heard already Neil talk about how he and his programming has had to adapt at the food bank. That has happened across a community-led work um, in, in at all at the neighborhood level. And so I think for us, our recommendation specifically around mental health, because it is uh, a system that was already challenged pre-COVID, um, this is going to be the other uh, long tail of this pandemic. It is the shadow pandemic that is coming towards us. And so we're encouraging folks, again, to be involved in their local. Mental health isn't just in the healthcare system, although that's clearly a vital part of it. But mental health services also exist at the community level, providing support to seniors in isolation, providing recreational and cultural support for folks. And uh, these are important organizations to keep supporting as we head into uh, the holiday season. Neil, uh, what are the items that you would like to see most uh, and any anything else uh, that you can tell us about people who want to be donating? Well, my, our hope is that individuals who do donate uh, food would donate uh, food that's you know, high in protein and, and things that you would serve your family around the table. Um, you know, if there's a, there's a particular food that uh, appeals to you, um, it's going to appeal to uh, to others. And so um, those are the types of uh, food. Are you that short anything? I'm sorry? Are you short anything? We, we, we are short uh, in the, the high protein items. So the canned meats would be um, very much appreciated. Um, and then again, you know, if you want Daily Bread to make those purchases for you, uh, making a financial contribution would be uh, greatly appreciated. And then finally, the advocation, uh, advocating piece. And what about uh, fresh food? We will do all the fresh on uh, for uh, uh, for uh, the um, uh, clients that we serve. Forty-two. One of the misnomers about daily bread is is that we only send out you know cans and boxes. But forty-two percent of what we send out to clients is uh, fresh food, and uh, and we do that through our farm to food bank program, where we have trucks every day going back and forth to Leamington and different areas of the province to pick up uh, food directly from farms. Okay. And uh, Sharon, anything you want to leave us with? Just to, to reinforce the fact that what would serve the Daily Bread Food bed, um, Bank the best would be cash. Um, if it's possible, if folks can do that, a donation and letting the food bank choose um, where that needs to go the, the most urgently is always the best decision. Um, but we understand folks give and participate in different ways, but I'm just reinforcing an unrestricted gift of, uh, of a donation of cash is always the best gift for an organization like Daily Bread. Okay. Cash is king. And happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Thank you, Sharon Avery and Neil Hetherington. Thanks very much, Libby. And Charlie says he's sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And bye, Charlie. And that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. Uh, if you couldn't get through this week or if there's something else you want to talk about, there's a lot to digest about long-term care. Also, we want to know what are you doing for Thanksgiving? What are you cooking? Are you having people over? Are you asking about their vaccine status? Do you have young children who aren't vaccinated? all of that. Uh, but the bottom line is that it's a lot better than it was last year. So until tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, as you heard in Bob's news yesterday, long-term care minister Rod Phillips announced a large, a huge cash injection to fix the sector. That includes $270 million for an ambitious goal, hiring 4,000 more nurses and personal support workers by the end of March. We will have full reaction, but first, I talked to Rod Phillips earlier this morning. Minister Phillips. Hi, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? 
I'm doing fine. Thank you. Fine. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. I'm glad we have some things to talk about, with, uh, some announcements and things. So it's all good. Um, so, so far, stakeholders and advocates are very optimistic about this. So I'd like to get some details. Um, how are you going to allocate this money and hold the homes to account that they're spending it on the right things? That's a great question. As you know, Libby, it's a historic amount of money, $4.9 billion, but $270 million this year to put 4,000 more frontline staff into our homes. Uh, the actual notices of the allocation, the money, to go out this week to the homes, not just for this year, but for each of the successive three years, because one of the concerns that the homes raised was having clarity about funding in the future, because we want them to be able to make plans, because at the end of the day, we're going to bring 27,000 new staff into the system, and we need to make sure that's done in an organized way. We will, of course, make sure that that money is spent on frontline employees by making sure that they're audited. And, and that is that is a process that the ministry has done in the past, so that these expenditures are audited against the actual expenditures to make sure it's PSWs, registered practical nurses, or registered nurses. We've also added uh, $43 million for additional support in the area of uh, what we call allied professions, but normal people would say those are people like dietitians and physiotherapists and social workers. And similarly, uh, those expenditures uh, will, be, will be checked you know, to make sure that the money's being spent where it needs to be spent on the front line. Stuff. If it's an audit, though, it's going to take quite a while, which means uh, how are people going to be kept to your deadlines? Well, that is uh, part of the part of the expectation we have in the funding arrangements with uh, the homes. And I have to say, uh, the operators of the homes have been quite enthusiastic. Everybody across the system, as you know, whether it's the representatives of the operators or it's the various uh, unions that we've worked with uh, in putting this plan together, all acknowledge that more staff um, as quickly as possible, knowing that we do have to train thousands and thousands of staff in order to do that as well, but that that's what's needed to uh, to improve the quality of life and make our homes safe. So, you know, there is a lot of goodwill across the system, but as always, we're going to check and make sure that the, the money is spent where it's meant to be spent. What about mandating full-time work versus part-time? One of the big complaints is that uh, Personal support workers have to cobble together two or three part-time gigs because that saves the home's money. You know, we are going to be putting 43% more money into long-term care system at over $4.9 billion uh, over the next four years. And I think they need to look at what the right staffing allocations are, and they need to look at this question about full-time staffing. I certainly hear about it from the PSWs. As I think you know, I've been dropping in sort of unannounced uh, with an inspector at a number of homes, and that's given me a chance to speak with them. I've also had some uh, other groups, uh, whether it's some of the some of the trade unions or others, put together uh, roundtables for me with, with staff. And this issue is a real issue around the quality of life. We know that there has to be flexibility. Uh, I have, though, put a table together that's going to be chaired by my parliamentary assistant, Ethan Trantopoulos, and my deputy minister to look at this and other issues because, as you know, it took decades to get us here. So I've asked that group, which will include representatives from the operators, it includes families, it includes residents, council members, but it also includes representatives from the various uh, organized labor groups to sit down and say, you know, what is the way we can make sure that we're, we're getting, you know, what we need for our residents in terms of staffing? And, and I'm certain that this issue of full-time and part-time will come up in that discussion. Right. But uh, do you, uh, can you rely on them to do the right thing after so many years when they didn't? Again, we, we are, uh, you know, we are going to fix the system, um, and we're going to do what it needs to take, whether it's on things like enforcement or accountability that I'll bring legislation. Even on this four hours of care, as I mentioned yesterday, I'll be putting into the legislation, so into the law, the land, a requirement for the four hours of care, because we want to be sure that, you know, governments, current and present, are held to account, but also that operators are. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, as I said, this is something that took decades to, to get to the state it is. Um, we are starting to make improvements. We're building the new homes as we promised. We have over 220 building and redevelopment projects underway um, across the province. We've got these dollars that now will start to flow next month uh, to add those 4,000 staff. Um, but it's, you know, it's going to be a bit of a journey and we're going to have to all hold each other accountable throughout it. Uh, some of the stakeholders are saying, you know, the money notwithstanding, uh, it's going to be quite a job to try to recruit that many people because uh, people are burning out and leaving the sector. 
Yeah, Libby, you know, it is one of the other things I've been spending time with. Yesterday was at George Brown, but I've been to a number of our community colleges, a number of the private colleges. You know, we have 11,000 um, PSWs uh, just by the end of this calendar year that have gone and gone through our very accelerated programs. Um, and one of the problems in the past, of course, has been ma- maintaining those those people once they're trained. But I'm optimistic on that front. I know it's I know it's challenging, and I certainly know it's challenging work uh, because I've heard that from the frontline staff. Um, but but there is um, there's great commitment there, and there's interest there. And I would even say, and this came not from me, but from one of the PSW students that I met uh, up in Ottawa at Algonquin College, and she said, you know, this was a bit of a call to to arms, uh, seeing the importance of this work. It's why she decided to be a PSW. So I think. Hopefully, we're going to see that enthusiasm, and we're going to also, you know, remember uh, we've got those, uh, you know, thirty thousand new beds we've committed to, twenty thousand now are underway, uh, two hundred and twenty projects going on. We're going to be making these facilities better places to live, but also better places to work. So, so it isn't going to get fixed overnight, but uh, it's going to get fixed. And one of the things people are calling for are permanent wage hikes for personal support workers. I think you gave a hint that may be coming. Well, we have been providing additional additional salary for, for over a year now, and uh, in the premier, uh, better better than me, the premier has has committed that this is going to be something that uh, you know we need to make sure that the wages for our PSWs are are you know the right wages for for people who are working in, in, in you know in what can be a challenging environment. And so, uh, I'm, um, his his commitments, uh, mine's pretty good, but I think his is even better. Um- one of the things that people who are involved in what they would call a continuing a continuum of care, uh, home care has to be included. Right now, home care is under a completely different department. Your government came in on a campaign promise to abolish a huge administrative layer called the LINS. In the meantime, they changed the name. It runs the same way. Have you been looking at integrating these two functions? You know, Libby, I have uh, been working with Minister Elliott since, since I was appointed to this ministry, which is like four months ago now, um, and having that conversation. She has been advancing work on that front. It, it is, you're quite right, it's a critical, critical part of the infrastructure. Uh, we need people to feel comfortable and safe aging at home. We have done some things, um, for instance, the renovation uh, tax credit for, for making homes more accessible and, and other, other areas that I know you've, uh, you've, you've spoken about in the past. Um, but but this has to be an all-of-government solution, and I've been working closely with Minister Elliott on that. We'll continue to. It's, it's important that we have those 30,000 new long-term care beds, but we know with the aging of the population um, that there's still going to be a need to make sure that we make it safe and comfortable for people to age at home, and quite frankly, that's where, where most people want to be. Right, especially after what happened during the pandemic. And just turning to that, um, I think everyone agrees that this is not something that happened overnight, but it did happen on your watch. So how do you personally process the fact that we had the worst record for death in nursing homes in every Western country? Well, Lydia, is, uh, as you said, the, the, the real tragedy uh, that happened uh, as a result of, of the pandemic is something that I think everybody Everybody who looked at it couldn't couldn't help but see and be affected by. Um, certainly, the Long Term Care Commission's report. Uh, when uh, when I read that in detail, and of course, most people don't have a chance to do that, but it pointed, as you said, to the success of government's failures, but also the challenges that we faced. And that's why in my first you know my first opportunity when I was uh, my first public event as minister, I stood up and I said, you know, this is something that that was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. I, I apologized for it, and I said, now we got to move forward. Um, I hear about it in talking to family members, uh, particularly, and uh, and it's quite moving. And I know you've had these conversations as well from from people who, you know, both both had uh, lost moms and dads and family members, but but also uh, who, who those family members who who didn't pass away but were affected by the long periods of isolation. And that's one of the reasons that uh, quite early on I moved to make sure that not just essential caregivers, but family members could get back into the homes. Obviously, we have to protect people, but part of it is protecting their mental health and their quality of life. So, you know, this is something that I think affected a lot of us. I'm trying to, you know, take the the energy from that and, and some of its anger and, and some of its optimism on this changes that we're making. As you said, a lot of the stakeholders across the spectrum, including, you know, the, the, the trade unions who, who, who 
represent the frontline staff and the operators and the family councils are, are cautiously optimistic, I'll call that, about, about getting this fixed and trying to take that energy and, and turn that into the kind of change that we need to see. But people who've lost loved ones, I mean, they blame your government, many of them. And, and I can understand that, and I've spoken to many of them. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, every, every single death and every unnecessary death is a, is a tragedy. So, so I understand their, uh, their view and, uh, and I listen to them. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, it's, again, I've been very pleasantly, I don't want to say surprised, um, because people in this province are really quite wonderful, but people have, have really been shown a lot of goodwill. Uh, from my perspective, in terms of the things we need to do, when they see investments like the one that we're making yesterday, um, they see that as a good first step. Uh, some people are cautious in their enthusiasm, and I understand why after decades of not getting things done. Um, but um, but they see progress, and and you know we are going to do our very best to make sure that we make the changes to fix long term care. Okay, long term care minister Rod Phillips, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby, and good luck to you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, the minister said he's pleased with the reaction from stakeholders and advocates, so let's see what they'd have to say. So I'd like to bring in Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Samantha Peck, executive director of Family Councils Ontario. And let's begin with Samantha. Um, I, I know that uh, we've gone beyond, I guess, he's trying to fix things, but uh, did you feel that he is taking enough responsibility for what happened? Uh, good afternoon. I'd say, I mean, families would say yes and no, that recognizing that the situation that we're in right now, result of many years of neglect and of government inaction or action. What I'm hearing from the folks that I work with is that they're, I think, cautiously optimistic around uh, what Minister Phillips has said and supportive of the responsibility he's taken so far, but are really looking to see what actions back up those statements that the minister has said so far. Okay, Charlene Stewart, um, what do you think of it? Well, good afternoon, Libby. Good afternoon. Others, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, You know, first of all, I certainly do want to recognize that, you know, what Minister uh, Phillips did is something that we called on Minister Fullerton to do, and uh, we are very thankful that he's done it. Putting, you know, the hours of care into legislation is a good move, although we're still obviously concerned that it's going to be so long to get it implemented. And, you know, of course, we welcome money uh, into the system. It's certainly needed to help solve some of the issues that we've uh, known for quite a while, but have really come to the forefront throughout the last 20 months during the pandemic. But the issue is, and I listened to the minister, and, you know, when I spoke to him numerous times about this, I repeatedly say, unless you hold people accountable, and you did ask him that question, Libby, but, uh, you know, it includes some really um, strict consequences uh, to if the, if the operators do not take that money and put it where it needs to be put. And that is absolutely on the front line. We need more full-time work. I mean, all of the announcements about the thousands of workers that they're expecting to be rushing to the front doors to work in the sector, um, we, we've spoken to those who are still there, to, P, to the PSWs who've worked in the system for 20, 30 years. And right now, the majority of their work in a lot of instances is orientating and training those uh, new graduates or, you know, new hires. And they're saying that these uh, predominantly women, young women, are coming into the buildings and lasting maybe three days. Wow. They, they are not staying in the system when they see what the conditions of work are. Of course, uh, the minister said that, that they uh, look at this as a calling, and I believe that. I've met thousands, tens of thousands of them. They do come into this profession to care for our elderly, which we should be so grateful for. But once they get in and see the conditions of work and the wages, they are saying, I'm not doing this. Some of them are saying, I'm going to go to McDonald's because I can get full-time work and I can get benefits. So until the minister makes sure that, and I've said, follow the money, make sure that that money is going to hire full-time workers so that they don't have to work at multiple uh, homes to get full-time work, give them the benefits that they deserve, and give them a decent living wage. Everything starts there. All the homes and beds that he's committing to, if you do not have full-time workers to show up and and care and serve those seniors, then this is all going to be wasted money. 
So the accountability is number one. Follow the money. Hold these operators accountable to hire not de-skilled frontline workers, but PSWs, RPNs, and RNs. Donna Duncan, uh, why is there, the government seems to be reluctant to mandate full-time work, but why is there so much resistance from operators? Uh, Actually, maybe, and and again, I'm delighted delighted to be back uh, with you. Um, There there isn't resistance. Uh, We want to, and in fact, so many of our members uh, really want to work with government to uh, reimagine what care looks like in long-term care and making sure, to Charlene's point, that we're actually staffing our homes with the right skills and competencies to meet the, the needs that our residents have today. One of the things people didn't recognize prior to the pandemic is just how heavy the work is, just how complex the care and living needs are of our residents, uh, and we're seeing the, the transition from hospitals of, of uh, people who are in hospital with very complex uh, medical care needs coming into long-term care or crisis placements from community where there may be highly responsive behaviors that require more more one-to-one supports. We have to staff up our homes. Uh, we know that emotion-focused care models require that, that continuity of care, that more full-time supports. Uh, a butterfly model. So we, we, we really do want to work together, and, including with, with Charlene. And Charlene, I think it's amazing how much we've agreed on things over the last 12 months. Uh, obviously, we, we have our disagreements, but uh, on this, we all agree that uh, this is an historic investment. It's an historic commitment, but to Sam's point, we've got to act. Uh, we have to use the legislation uh, and legislative change as an opportunity to uh, give us the tools to work together to uh, make sure that we're, we're getting to this for hours of care as quickly as possible. But we also have to recognize, as Charlene says, people are leaving the sector, so let's rebuild. Uh, but also, let's act with urgency to get more people into our homes as quickly as possible. That 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 focus on training, we need to focus on care. We need to make sure that we're we're doing everything we can to make things better for our for our residents. And we need to restore trust and confidence. And that's that's going to come through these investments. It's going to come through us working together in partnership, but it's also going to come in how we talk about long-term care and the words that we use. And uh, I'm, I'm really optimistic. Uh, I think we can do it, uh, but uh, we can't rely on government for everything. It, it really is going to take us working together to uh, hold the government accountable as well as holding our homes. Hmm. Uh, one of the things I noticed uh, positively, he said the dollars are flowing next month. And I remember last year with Minister Fullerton, like she'd announced something and it would be months and months and months and nobody had seen a penny. And yeah, that's so true, Libby. It's, uh, you know, the minister really is, I, I think he's, he's really committed to acting and uh, we're seeing a lot of movement uh, over the over the past four months, and we're really encouraged about uh, additional announcements coming. Samantha Peck, um, what is at the top of the priority list for you? Uh, certainly, in for in terms of enforcement, um, you know, can you wait till legislation gets passed and all of that? So, I think in terms of, I think about it more as accountability and enabling change. Enforcement's part of that. So what families want is for the long-term care system to be held to a, a standard of excellence. So looking at, uh, I think, to, to Donna's point about emotion-focused care, looking at what different models are available that support the resident family and staff well-being. And what that looks like to families is what um, it, it's really looking at what's the quality experience. So looking at things such as our families and residents participating in the decisions that are made about the home in which they live and care. Are families and residents happy with the services that are provided for meal times? Do residents enjoy the food that they're eating? Are staff, uh, are staff supported? Do they enjoy coming to work? Are they given the time they need to care for people properly? So when we're looking at enforcement, I think it really needs to come through a lens of an excellent experience for families, residents, and staff, because it has to be 
for everyone that walks the halls of that space. Yes, enforcement, compliance, there do need to be consequences for inaction or for the wrong action taken. But I think we really need to shift our perspective and our focus to enabling excellence through coaching for long-term care homes so that instead of being told, you know, you did this wrong, figure it out on your own, we look at here's an issue, here's another home that has done this well, how can we help this first home achieve excellence? Because without really having a culture of enabling excellence and just focusing on accountability and compliance, we're just going to achieve the bare minimum. And families want an excellent experience for everyone. They don't want just good enough. And with this increase in funding for staffing levels this year and ongoing years, what families are really encouraged by is that there's an emphasis not just on your clinical staff, for RNs, RPNs, and PSWs who are providing that really hands-on intimate care, but also for allied health professionals. What we've heard is that social workers are so vital to helping homes be excellent places to live, work, and care. They help resolve conflict, and that's between families and staff, residents and staff. That's where we want to see change is that whole culture of of an excellent experience. Okay, Charlene Stewart, uh, for your members uh, right now, what's at the top of their priority list and or what's their biggest complaint about the way things are now? Again, it is the availability of full-time work. You know, listening um, to both uh, Donna and Samantha talk about the excellent experience, of course, that's what these frontline workers want. You know, when you talk to a frontline worker, and I know that uh, both the other women will agree, they, they refer to their residents as their family. You know, always, that's my family, that's my family. Sometimes when I'm having conversations, I'm confused. Is that your, you know, your biological family or is that your residence? So they want absolutely the excellent experience. And, you know, you think about the emotional care. Again, I just spoke a couple of days ago to the frontline workers, and they're saying, uh, you know, these seniors, and when you take a look at full-time work, we have to get rid of the assembly line model here. You can't continually be rushed and rushing residents out of their room at between 6.30 and 8 o'clock in the morning to have breakfast. Some of them do not want to have breakfast until 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. Full-time work cannot just be focused on the, you know, the high hours. Of when, and most of that is feeding. There's behavior issues that, you know, a senior, and one of them explained that. She gets uh, periods of time during the day where she gets, you know, quite, quite aggressive, and she requires emotional caregiving. And the way the PSW explained it to me is, you know, they, they have to find time to sit with her, hold her hand, and talk to her about how her day's going, you know, how her family's going, and she's fine. But you cannot do that when the patient, when the resident to caregiver ratio is sometimes 35 to 1, because that poor PSW is trying to calm down this woman, knowing that she's got another, you know, 20 of them that are not being attended to because of the staffing levels. They all want the excellence of care. They care about these people. It starts and ends with full-time work so people can provide this quality care to the seniors that they call their family. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll be checking in uh, very soon. We'll see how this project is going. It's ambitious. 4,000 uh, more frontline workers by the end of March, uh, and we I wish everybody good luck with that. Um, thank you so much, Samantha Peck, Charlene Stewart, and Donna Duncan. Thanks, Libby. Take care. My thank pleasure. You. Take care, everybody. Okay. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more reaction to this big cash infusion into long-term care. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.